the first thing to start with, especially in the area where I live in northeast South Dakota, would be just to start keeping the soil covered and really leave your corn and soybean stover in the field because that helps protect the soil surface and returns more carbon to the field and reducing tillage also but people are hesitant people in the like minnesota eastern north and south dakota and iowa still do a lot of tillage and it's worked for them for a long period of time and some of the pro-soil health people are doing more reduced tillage mm-hmm. but i think we're, the easiest two to start out with would just be leaving your crop stover or straw in the field a whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming now you have the brightest minds of the crop industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to the field to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple welcome to the crop science podcast show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. I'm Precision Nutrient Management Extension Specialist out of Oklahoma State University. Today, uh, happy to welcome Dr. Hans Klopp. He's the Extension Soil Health Field Specialist with South Dakota State University, and he's stationed at the Watertown Regional Center. Now, Hans has a pretty fun background looking into his background. He uh, got his doctorate at University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, master's from North Dakota State, but he's been running through the, the Plains states, really, for the last uh, couple years postdoc, and he's been, been with uh, USDA ARS uh, out of Bushland, Texas. He's been at University of Lincoln, Nebraska, and he spent time in Sydney, Montana. So Hans, welcome to the podcast today and kind of give a little bit more of your background, where you come from and, and what you're doing now. Okay, I grew up in Lodi, Wisconsin. I earned a bachelor's degree with a major in water resources and minor in soil science from University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. I earned a master's degree in soil science from North Dakota State University, where I studied the effects of soil salinity and sodicity on soil, soil hydraulic properties and mechanical properties. And then for my PhD, which I did at University of Wisconsin-Madison, I studied the effects of soil salinity and sodicity on soil physical and chemical properties. And then after that, I briefly worked for NRCS for five five months as a soil conservationist. Then I have worked as a postdoctoral researcher at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, working on the effects of soil management practices on soil properties. And then I briefly worked for ARS in Sydney, Montana as a research technician. And then I was a postdoc with USDA ARS in Bushland, Texas, where I worked on a study trying to improve the performance of soil time domain reflectometry, soil moisture sensors, and to improve their performance in a range of soil types. And I'm currently working for South Dakota State University as a soil health extension field specialist. 
So, I mean, a, a Wisconsin boy going down to Bushland, how, how happy were you uh, to get out of that country? I didn't really enjoy Bushland because I like fishing a lot and there really was no lake. So that's about where you can hardly grow any crops without ear. <laughs> you can hardly grow dry land crops in that area because it's so dry. It's so, the weather's so inconsistent. Like one year they'll get 100 bushel per acre sorghum and 30 bushel per acre, 30 or 40 bushel per acre wheat. But then two years in a row, you'll basically get nothing. Nothing. It's just all when rain falls. Yeah, we, we kind of suffer the same in Oklahoma. I can grow either 100 bushel wheat or zero bushel wheat. Same thing of sorghum. We put up on the same piece of ground two years ago. We had nearly 200 bushel sorghum in the following year 30. All rain fed. So it's it's an inter- interesting climate. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at SDSU. Right now I'm coming... I just started as a soil health extension field specialist, and my job is to portray and give information to farmers on how to improve the quality and sustainability of their soils by the management that they do. I currently haven't started up any research projects there, but what I would be interested in doing research on is cover crops and tillage techniques or cropping cropping system or diversity of cropping systems, whether incorporating perennials into annual cropping systems or adding additional stuff to just corn and soybean rotations will improve soil health slash quality. So in that region, what are, what are you seeing as potential, some of the greatest limiting factors for A, just the cropping systems and B, improving soil health parameters? I think one of the biggest issues on the whole Great Plains in South Dakota, too, is is just lack of moisture or inconsistent precipitation is one of the biggest difficulties with producing annual crops. With things such as cover crops, it's hard to incorporate cover crops into like corn so into rotation especially if it's just corn and soybeans when you're farther north because your fallow fallow period is pretty cold where it's hard to get things to grow. And when you take off grain corn on October 15th to 30th, there's really not much growing period to plant any cover crops besides cereal rye. And I've just... I know a lot of people are very into cover crops now, but I think in the semi-arid areas, you need to be very careful with how you manage them because especially in corn, people find negative impacts of the cereal rye on grain yields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we struggle with that, and I figure we'll dive into that conversation a little bit later. So as we look into it, is what your farmers are doing now, is there – is there much effort to uh, spread a cover prior to harvest? Are we looking at any aerial application or anything along those lines? I think some people try aerial interseeding cover crops. I don't know how popular it is. I think it's kind of a little more expensive than planting it by just your own drill. I think it's hard to get consistent seed soil contact. So sometimes the stands of the cover crop are not very good when they're aerial interseeded. So so for that area, if we're harvesting in October in corn, really, I mean, what's your soil temps like at that time? I mean, I'm assuming you're right at that verge of not being able to germinate a rye. Probably 
I don't know. It's probably really variable depending on the year, probably in the 40 to 60 degree range. I don't, I don't have any sensors out or anything to measure it, but I don't think it's very, very warm. So let's get into something that you, you probably can talk about a little bit more in depth because it's more of your background. So, so talk to us about when, we, when we dive in, especially as extension specialists, because I, I feel you, that's where I'm at. And a farmer asked me, uh, to improve soil health, or they want to improve soil health. What, what parameters in your mind and your, your experience are you trying to, to improve, manipulate or change? What's those parameters that you pay attention to? I think the first thing to start with, especially in the area where I live in Northeast South Dakota, would be just to start keeping the soil covered and really leave your corn and soybean stover in the field because that helps protect the soil surface and returns more carbon to the field and reducing tillage also, but people are hesitant. People in the like Minnesota, Eastern, North and South Dakota and Iowa still do a lot of tillage and it's worked for them for a long period of time. And some of the pro-soil health people are doing more reduced tillage. Mm -hmm. But I think the easiest two to start out with would just be leaving your crop stover or straw in the field and reducing tillage. And I think with soil health, they say one of the principles is to incorporate livestock. And I think if you're going to do silage or remove your stover or straw, I think you should like apply, make sure, keep it locally where you can get manure back onto your farm. Because if you are removing the stover and or it is silage and selling it to people and not returning any carbon and nutrients back, you're creating an ex you're exporting carbon from your carbon and other nutrients from your system. And that is not the best to maintain soil health and probably long-term fertility. Absolutely. So, so in that country, so I, I didn't realize this, I would have, so especially in the Dakotas, South and North Dakota, I would expect most of that corn stover to be left on field. Cause I'm thinking Oklahoma, Kansas, where, we don't bail a lot or we don't insulate a lot of that stover. We leave it on for soil and water for water conservation. We have very limited tillage. So in that territory, you're saying it's either shipped off for silage for the stover or it's tilled still. People still till quite a bit in the eastern part. As you go farther, what I've noticed from moving around is like in Nebraska, a lot of people know till in, cent- in central in western North and South Dakota and in eastern Montana, quite a few people were using reduced tillage because it conserves water. But in a lot more so in eastern North Dakota and South Dakota and Minnesota, there's still a lot of tillage. There's still a lot of people when I've been driving around Wisconsin that are tilling uh-huh. too, which I understand there's some purpose of tillage, like and there's a time and place for it. But if you're going to still put down pre-emerges and use herbicide to control the weeds, essentially you're saving you're saving money and you probably have similar yields using reduced tillage as conventional tillage. Do you see bringing in uh, or have you seen an influx or do you see it as a potential 
and some of those folks that just love to till that just have that tillage bug that they they've got to turn turn dirt. Um, do you see the the influx of strip till uh, in that area or a potential for strip till to kind of meet both demands? There's some people trying strip till. I've seen a few fields strip tilled. It looks like from what I've been driving around and seeing lately, it's more just vertical till or like a chisel till chisel pulp lake tillage. I think some people like having, like people go out in the field and if you have like conventional tillage versus no tillage, when you put your plants in in the spring, you will see that the conventional tillage looks better initially than the no-till because the soil warms up faster. And, but in the end, it doesn't, what water you have throughout the year is just as important as it being up. Absolutely. So back to the, the soil health question. So if a farmer comes to you or a producer comes to you and says, you know, uh, Dr. Klopp, I want to improve soil health, but I want to measure my changes. What parameters would you tell them to, to when they look at their field, what parameters would you have them measure so that over time they could document impact? Oh. I think over the long term, we probably want to measure soil organic carbon is the biggest one. And I think a lot of the soil health parameters are, are related to soil carbon. Also, a lot of people have found like wet aggregate stability to be a sensitive indicator to man, management practice. There also is other measurements related to soil carbon, such as like particulate organic matter carbon, uh -huh. which is just essentially just the leftover root, roots and crop residue that's being returned to the system, which essentially like if you're removing all your wheat, your straw or stove or, or planting just like continuous soybeans, you'd probably have low, very low particulate organic matter compared to a system where you would have a lot of roots and a lot of rep prop biomass being returned to the soil. There's also measurements like pox, particulate or no pox, pox. Per, that's permanganate oxidizable carbon, which supposedly gets at the active carbon community in the soil or People will do something like a CO2 burst just to see how microbial active is. And you also can measure things like the soil microbial biomass or different community, different microbial communities that are present in the soil because essentially they want more fungi and less bacteria because supposedly the fungi are more sensitive to management than the bacteria and you have more mycorrhizal fungi in associations with plants and healthier soils. And I'm not a soil microbiologist by training, so it's a whole learning experience for me. I'm not either. Looking through some of your stuff, and so I'm going to uh, kind of keep along the same practice. In Oklahoma, we've, we've seen that using carbon as a soil health indicator is really challenging because of our weather flux. You know, having a, a drought, having a, a spot drought really messes with that the continuum of building soil carbon. So I noticed you've got some, at least some uh, papers or, or fact sheets out looking at soil pentrometer resistance and bulk density. And we're playing with a lot of that, like you mentioned, aggregate stability and just 
uh, bulk density as a, a measure or soil penetration resistance as a measure. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit what those, uh, what you're talking about in those publications? Okay, so the the articles I wrote on penetration resistance is bulk density, just providing information of what the measurement is and what it means. And I think one of the dynamic soil properties they have been measuring is is bulk density because it's an, just an indication of how basically just how dense the soil is. And if soils are soil compaction is a major issue, especially when you have all this really large agri- large heavy agricultural equipment going across fields and it's like a blind thing that's negative to has negative effects on your grain yields like it's kind of overlooked or not like the most important thing producers look into but it definitely can reduce your crop yields and and soil ecosystem services such as increased runoff when you have rain less infiltration and i think kind of Bulk density is probably more accurate than penetration resistance because there's a lot more factors that measure penetration resistance because that is essentially just the force that it takes the penetrometer to push into the soil. And a lot of people are using it as soil health. And for extension, it's a good measurement because you could go somewhere and just push the penetrometer into the soil and show them. And it's supposedly how dense it is and what the root, root feels, but water content and soils with higher clay probably have a lot more variables that affect the so so i'm aware of it but share with the the group why because what you're basically saying is bulk density would be a more precise measure but we use penetration uh, resistance share with the group the the joy of taking a lot of bulk density samples what does bulk density sampling look like for a researcher like us how, how do you do that what you do is there's a couple different ways people do it. One way they do is they use just a getting soil probe or normal soil probe and you insert it in the soil and you measure the length of the sample you took out and then you know the diameter of the probe and then you dry out the sample and then you can get the oven dry soil mass that's inside the the getting's probe or whatever type of soil probe you are using. For the more accurate methods to use, such as a Ulin coring device, which pounds in rings that you can remove of a certain volume, and then you pound them into the soil, and then you bring them back to the lab, and you trim them to be flush with the top and bottom of the metal ring, and then you oven dry the sample and weigh it. And that is time-consuming, and some soils are really hard to collect bulk density samples from because they don't stay together very well. And when it hasn't rained in 120 days, that's also not enjoyable trying to pull bulk density samples. Um, when it comes to the Giddings probe and what we've seen and I'm challenged with is that that compaction of the first inch or so. Is there is that the one of the biggest challenges with the Giddings probe is that that compaction or even holding the sample in the tube or is it how accurate has that been for you? I am not sure. I haven't done any comparison. I know I've seen people, many people doing studies comparing bulk density from the Giddings probe versus the Claude method versus the Ulin samplers because right now carbon is a really big thing in agriculture and with our agriculture policy and people trying to be car- carbon neutral. So 
A lot of people are interested in measuring soil carbon stocks, which to determine the soil carbon stocks, you need to know the bulk density of the soil. And there are some challenges with me measuring soil bulk density. And I think you get a little different met calculations depending upon what method you use to determine bulk density. I want to go, and, and I think uh, I could be wrong on this, but I, I found this intriguing because I work with uh, uh, Tom DeSutter quite a bit up at NDSU. Uh, you've got a little bit of background in salinity and sodicity, is that correct? Correct. I don't think that that as far as a large scale, if we talk about anybody that's listening on the East Coast or, or you know, the, the Corn Belt and stuff, can you kind of describe a little bit of the the challenges and the really the magnitude of that that problem in your region? I think the salinity and sodicity is more widespread than just the Great Plains and West, though, because there's a lot of saltwater intrusion and occurring uh -huh. with sea level rise in the eastern part of the U.S., which is causing issues on agricultural ground, too. But essentially, too much soluble salts in the soil increases the osmotic potential, and it's more difficult for plants to take up water and nutrients from the soil. And over a certain salinity level, you will have decreased crop yields, and some crops are more or less sensitive to salinity and sodicity, such as with corn, I think if you get an e, have an EC of four, you have a pretty significant yield loss. Whereas with cotton, once it's up, you can irrigate with a lot higher salinity levels, which I know they do in parts of the Western U.S. They'll they don't really see much of a yield decrease in cotton. I think to like electrical conductivities of like eight or ten decisiemens per meter. I haven't looked at the specific numbers recently, but I know. Certain crops are more or less sensitive to it. And yeah, so, sodicity, go ahead. And sodicity cause, causes more of an issue with soil structure. And you usually have a high pH with sodicity because you have a lot of, usually have a lot of carbonates, pre, carbonate and bicarbonate present in this soil water, which is causing the calcium to precipitate out. And then your electrical, then your, sodium to calcium and magnesium ratio gets really high and that that reduces this that disperses the soil clays particularly smectite the expansive shrink swell clay which is very prevalent in the great plains and hmm. western u.s and it break causes the organic matter and clay not to form nice aggregates like you have in a healthy soil or a soil that does not have sodicity issues. And then your hydraulic conductivity slash infiltration is generally low when you have sodic conditions. And a lot of the a lot of the salinity and sodicity in South Dakota is due to areas of parent materials that are high in salinity and sodicity, such as in the James River valley and that's more just from waters in the landscape coming up near the soil surface and then accumulating in certain areas and then the soil exchangeable sodium percentage and SAR which are both in measurements to indicate how much sodium is in the soil generally get high and then when you get rainfall that 
flushes the water down, you get a low EC, which causes the hydraulic conductivity to be low. And you can drive through that area and see fields where there's so many bare spots in the field because of salt, salinity, and sodicity issues. There also are areas where there's probably irrigation water that's high in salinity or sodicity, but I haven't done that much work to know where they're at. Visiting with the uh, NC State small grain specialist, she was talking about trying to screen for basically the saltwater intrusion, looking for genetics or crop types to start, in, you know, going up against that. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that saltwater intrusion, especially on the coastal coastal soils. I I do want to kind of I in the same field of view. How do you see the um, introduction of soil health practices specifically no-till and a significant reduced tillage and salinity and sodicity in the region is it complementary where if we go more no-till we have less or could it be in some scenarios conflicting i am not sure i think your your best thing to what some of the nrcs people were saying to me when i was talking with them they encourage to plant perennial vegetation that just keeps the water table down lower so you have still have the salts but they're down at the two foot range and you can get something to come out grow on it rather than plant corn or soybeans and just have nothing to grow on and then you get all the evaporation pulling the salts up to the surface. I am not sure what the interaction of no-till and soil salinity and sodicity is. That may be a grand idea. Well, I'll tell you, Hans, in Oklahoma, some interesting, because we have some uh, sodic layers uh, around one foot to two foot, some of our soils. So in the rolling regions where we have nice slope, we have, you know, water interaction or this nice slope rolling ground where we've gone into good no-till or heavy no-till it's kind of this fun interactions like, you know, the positive about no-till in these semi-arid environments is we increase water infiltration into the soil profile. And what we see sometimes on our sloping ground is that we increase, increase this water infiltration on sloping ground with this uh, sodic horizon at depth. And all of a sudden we now create a sodic saline spot at our bottom of our slope because we're, and it's a benefit, right? It's it's good. We want water infiltration, but now we're moving more of the salts down that that profile, and so we have gone to some of these lower areas that are poorly drained at the bottom of the slope that have have created a sodic spot or a salt spot. So working on some drainage or maybe putting perennial in that low lying area, like you said, that can deal with it. But it was interesting is that the you know sometimes, especially for some of the soil health stuff and no tills that. We're, we're learning that it's all good. It's good things, but sometimes there's the next step down the line that, okay, we've got, we've got this, we've improved this, but there may be downstream things that are changing about our system. Yeah. I think, I think gr using crops that use more water and improving infiltration also will help manage the salt. That's why in those areas they were suggesting to plant crops like alfalfa that would use a lot of water. Although Getting the alfalfa stand sometimes on the saline areas to start, getting it to start is the difficult. I was about to ask, I didn't think alfalfa would be that, I know it would be a water demander, but I didn't know if it was very sensitive to saline sodic. I haven't worked with alfalfa. I think it's sometimes picky coming up, though, in certain soils, or if it's too wet, it doesn't come up very well. 
alfalfas, I've, I've done several alfalfa trials and it's always keeping your fingers crossed that first couple of weeks. It's a tiny seed that's sown so shallowy. It's so shallow. It's, it's a challenge. Um, anything, uh, you know, anything else you want to add to the conversation about stuff you're doing or looking forward to? I actually would like to do some research working with different vegetation types on saline and sodic soils to see what, how the different vegetation types and having like corn and soybeans versus perennial crops or salt tolerant species would perform. And then measure soil health indicators such as some of the carbon ones I was talking about, plus physical properties such as infiltration, which I've done a lot of. I've done a lot of work measuring like hydraulic conductivity and infiltration related stuff. So that's more of my background. It's time for our famous three. Well, fascinating, Hans. So kind of wrap up, we got three general questions. So every guest that comes onto the podcast has these three final questions as we go through that's more on uh, the personal realm. So what is, um, What's a uh, work-based uh, book or resource that you go to often for, you know, your your scientific uh, realm? What's something you use as a resource on a regular? Probably Google Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Me too. So, okay. Uh, a second. Uh, what's uh, outside of work? Uh, do you have a favorite book or, or if you don't do a lot of reading, a favorite uh, movie? I don't know. I don't read a lot of books or watch a lot of movies. Usually in my spare time, I usually go fishing or hunting or. Okay. So I'm going to go sideways on that. What's, uh, what is your favorite fish to target? Muskies. Muskies. Uh, uh, so one of my favorite things I get to do is of course up North y'all don't hold extension meetings except for December and January. It's like the only time I get I ever go to the northern country, so I have had the opportunity to do a fair amount of ice fishing and dark house <laughs> spear fishing a couple times, and so that that's always enjoyable. I think it's I think it's just the easiest time to get people together <laughs> because people aren't working on agronomy research yeah. or or harvesting because like in some areas to get like April and May everybody's trying to plant stuff and then. If you grow wheat starting in July, you start harvesting it. And then through through November, everyone's harvesting and soil sam soil sampling. So most agronomy people are really busy in those times of year. Hunting, are you uh, uh, an upland upland bird or are you a deer large game? I don't I like hunting I mostly hunt for large game like deer, elk. And I do some bird hunting. There's a lot of pheasants where I'm at now. Oh yeah, you're you're in a well-renowned pheasant country. I, I love all the outdoors, fishing, hunting, and otherwise. It, it's it's what I do. Other than again, like you said, I don't read a lot of books. When I read, that's a book that's not scientific. It's like I should be probably reading a journal article and then <laughs> movie time. Uh, a lot of times when I. A lot of times when I read stuff all day or just edit Word documents, it's like I go home and I don't feel like reading anything. Completely agree. Then finally, if you're looking at somebody who's in grad school right now or getting into the academic process, 
what's uh, what's uh, in your opinion, or what's a suggestion or idea that you'd give them to to have a successful career, uh, whether it's an academic or just in uh, an agronomist as a whole? I think it would one thing would be to do is just try to build relationships with people at different areas, and if you want to go into acad academia, I would suggest to try to get your paper papers in the review process as soon as you obviously want to do a good job but get the stuff under review sooner rather than later because the whole publishing and peer review process can t drag out for a while in that and i don't know if it's good or bad but that's kind of what a lot of people look at when they look at people's cvs i think the amount of grants you apply for or get and the amount of papers you publish is what people look at a lot when they're on hiring com committees and get diversified experience, whether it's pre presenting at some extension field day or write, collaborate with an extension faculty to write an extension article based on your research. And Work with people with a range of backgrounds. Well, Hans, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crop Science Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was nice meeting you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.